Our scripture reading today is coming from Psalm 150, verse 1 through 6. You can find it in your bulletin, in your Bible, or on the screen behind me. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, as Mike said, uh, we're starting this new sermon series this summer, going through the book of Psalms together. Uh, Now, why, of, of all of the things that we could choose to preach on, Uh, Why the book of Psalms? Uh, Well, Psalms, maybe like no other book in the Bible, gives voice to both the reality of our need and to the riches of God's grace. Uh, Psalms is a a book that's uh, an ancient book for modern people. It's a collection of uh, 150 different prayers and songs written almost over a thousand years that speak to every part of our experience of life, living in a world that is not all that it should be. Uh, As you read through the book of Psalms, you enter into these stories of loss, betrayal, envy, anger, grief, doubt, and as you do, as you read each of these psalms, as we enter into each one of these stories, we we get the chance to make that prayer our prayer, to make that song our song. It's a book that in a broken world gives voice to the reality of all of our need in here this morning and to the riches of God's grace to us in the gospel. You see, Psalms is a book that is ultimately about Jesus. Uh, From Psalm 1 to 150, each one of these awakens in their own way our hearts and minds to God's plan of grace for us in Jesus. In fact, that's why when we get to the New Testament, which is just one big explanation of the gospel, one big explanation of Jesus. The book that gets most quoted in it is the Psalms. In other words, when God wants to show us who he is to us and for us in Jesus, his natural reflex is to send us to the Psalms where we are captivated in wonder and awe at what we all need this morning more than anything else, Jesus. And so for the next two months, we're going to journey together through this book of the Psalms, starting at where is probably the best place to start with it, the end. Uh, When I was a kid, I, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, Uh, Every fall, our family would go to a Syracuse University football game together. Now, 
I know that many of you in here uh, went to colleges with far more respectable football stadiums than ours, okay? I grant you that, all right? Our claim to fame is that we have a fully enclosed dome stadium named after an air conditioning company that has zero air conditioning in it. Uh, it's, it's, it's an awful experience, actually. <clears throat> Uh, but when I was a kid, we'd go to the games, and, and you know, one of the prized things at these games that we would trade back and forth was our pair of family binoculars. Uh, my, my dad, being a pragmatist, he, he would buy a ticket behind one of the end zones, meaning for half of the game that was happening in the other half of the field, you were fairly oblivious to whatever was going on there. You're just reacting to the crowd. Until it was your moment with the family binoculars. And when you looked through those, Suddenly, the, the, the players, they all seemed bigger. You, you felt like you were, you were right there next to them. You felt like you were right in the play with them. Well, how can God get bigger in my life? How could God get more present in my life like that? How could I feel this morning like he is right there with me? How could I find some pair of binoculars to look through so that with whatever I am going through, God would seem big and present? How can Jesus be more of a reality in our church, in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces? How can he be big and present in the situations that all of us brought in with us here this morning? When we're disappointed, when we're hurt, when we're confused, when we're exhausted, when we're lonely, when we're defeated, how can we get more of Jesus in those places? How can we be ready for when the brokenness of our world or of our lives surprises us in ways that we, we could have never seen coming. Well, Psalm 150 is telling us how. Praising God. Uh, this verse has, this psalm has six verses with 12 different commands that all say one thing. Praise the Lord. Rave about him. Just go on and on about him. Be, be constantly seeing, naming, and praising his goodness because when you do, it's like putting on this pair of binoculars that suddenly makes him bigger and more present in whatever that you are going through right now. So there's four questions that I think Psalm 150 in particular wants us to ask this morning about praising the Lord. Four questions. Where, why, how, and who? So first, where do we praise God? Uh, the psalm starts off by saying, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Uh, now, the sanctuary, that's the place uh, on earth where God was present. And so just like his praise, uh, like God is praised in the heavens, the psalm is saying that he should be praised here on earth, meaning essentially everywhere is where God should be praised. That the whole universe should be filled with God's praise because that's actually, that's actually the point that it was all made for. 
You see, this is really the big idea that, that the whole book of Psalms has been building toward. Right? If you read through the Psalms <clears throat> or look at it in your Bible right now, you'll, you'll notice that it, it gets broken up into these five different books or sections. And uh, each of these books ends with this verse praising God until you get to book five, the last section, the conclusion, end of the whole thing. That ends not, not just with this one little verse or phrase praising God. No, we get, we get five full psalms praising God that build until it finally crescendos here in Psalm 150, this full-throated praise of God in heaven and on earth in every square inch of the universe because praising God, it's not just where the book of Psalm ends. It's where the story of the world ends. And when you see where something ends, you now understand the purpose that it was made for. You see, Psalm 150 is saying that, that the, the reason this entire universe was created, the reason you and me were put on it, is to rave about God. It is to join this choir in heaven and on earth, shouting and glorifying God. But that's the point of all creation. That, that's actually the meaning of all of our lives. And now you might be hearing this, though, and thinking, doesn't that make God sound a, a bit narcissistic? I mean, if, if this is really saying that the, the reason that we are all breathing right now is to go on and on and on and on about how, how great God is. Does, does that make him out to be a bit narcissistic? And how can I even praise something if, I, if I'm being forced to do it? I, I mean, it, it all sounds a little inauthentic to me. Well, C.S. Lewis, one of the best Christian thinkers who's ever lived, uh, for a lot of his life, struggled with these same exact questions. How, how can I praise God when I'm being commanded to do it? Uh, what do we do with a God that, as he once said, uh, seems to be saying, what I most want is to be told that I'm good and great. Until one day, it, it all clicked for him. And he wrote a little chapter in a book about it, and this is what he it says he finally realized. He says, the world rings with praise, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. No, the delight is incomplete until it's expressed. In other words, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that when we praise something, when, when, when we rave about it, we are actually delighting in it. We are enjoying in it in that moment more than if we had never said anything about it at all. And what's true about weather and wine and lovers is just as true about God. 
But as Lewis goes on to write, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. In other words, Psalm 150 isn't God demanding our forced praise, but liberating our joy. It's God's desire to see you savor every part of his goodness, to be captivated with every aspect of his beauty. It's not the demand of a narcissist, but the invitation of someone who desires relationship with you. Because in calling us to give him the praise that he is rightly due, God is, he's inviting wounded, weary, wandering people like you and me into greater, deeper intimacy and enjoyment of him. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we all really need? So that's the where. Second, why? Why do we praise God? Uh, now, now, in one sense, uh, there's no uh, end to the reasons that we could come up with this morning of why we should praise God. That sermon could go on forever. Uh, but in verse 2, the psalmist, he, he, he gathers together what could be this endless list, and he boils it all down to one main thing. He says, praise him for his mighty deeds. Now, that, that word that gets translated there as mighty deeds, uh, it, it probably sounds a bit vague, but when you look at how it gets used in other psalms, it, it starts to come into focus. So five other times this word gets used in the psalms, all of them referring to God saving his people by grace, God's mighty deeds of rescue and redemption. That Psalm 106, one of the psalms that uses this word, says that he does on behalf of his undeserving people out of his heart of love that never ends, never quits, never gives up on us. Mighty deeds that were preparing and pointing us to God's greatest, his ultimate deed of grace to us in Jesus you see, the reason we praise God isn't a something, but a someone. It's Jesus. He is the mighty deed of God's never quit on us love. Who 2,000 years ago came for needy, broken people like you and me. Not as harsh and demanding not critical and distant, not, not cold and hesitant, no, gentle and lowly, whose very heart for people like us, people with a past, people with regrets, people who can't keep life all together, wasn't continually moved with smugness or disdain, but compassion and grace that led him to the mightiest deed of God, that Psalm 150 was always pointing toward and yet could have, could have never fully seen coming. About 100 years ago in England, uh, the then king, Edward VIII, fell in love with a woman. Uh, he, had, he had never met anyone like her before. He, he was absolutely wild about her. He, he wanted to marry her. He wanted to make her his queen. He wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. There's just one problem. Uh, she had a past. 
one that, that made her completely off limits for a king to marry. And everyone knew it. For all, all of his friends and family, they, they kept telling him this. They kept telling him, you've, you've got to ditch her, all right? Just get past this. You can't marry her. No, no king could possibly marry a woman like that. And so what happened? He said, but you guys don't realize this. I love her. And so he gave up everything. He gave up his fame, his power, his crown, all so that he could have her, his disqualified bride. Well, God's mighty deed of rescue and redemption in Jesus is that same story of a king, Jesus, who also has a bride with a past, us. One that makes us completely off limits to be with somebody like him, but Jesus said, you just don't understand. I love them. And so what did he do? He gave up everything everything so he could have us that on the cross the heart of jesus damned up with love finally burst over with scandalous goodness with shocking kindness with outrageous generousness as he could as he died all so that he could have us all so that he could marry you and if he does if he has you this morning, if you are in Jesus this morning, this is now what is true of you this very moment. The subtitle of your life story will for now on always read, there is no condemnation for me in Jesus. You are loved today by God the Father just as much as he loves his son, and there is not a thing that you can do to change that. Every situation and circumstance in your life is now caught up in Jesus' never-ceasing prayers for you. Every failure and sin in your life is met by his always gentle heart for you, and God is now committed to finishing his good work of grace in you to make you as lovely and as loving as Jesus, having guaranteed to you the same bright resurrection future of Jesus that is secure to you this morning as it is undeserved. And anyone can get in on this. This, the gospel, this is the, the mighty deed of God, his ultimate act of rescue and redemption that we praise him for, that Psalm 150 was always pointing toward this morning. It's Jesus. Praising God simply means in our wounds, our weariness, our wandering, being moved to wonder at Jesus. It means being continually in awe of God's grace continually being captivated by the truth, beauty, and goodness of his son, continually being astonished by the gospel, astonished by the fact that because of the mighty deed of God, I now belong to Jesus. 
So where, why, third, how do we praise God? How, how do we praise him for everything that he has done for us in Jesus? Well, in verse three, the, the psalmist tells us, he says, praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Now, at first glance, if you were like me, when you read that, it just sounded a bit redundant, right? Like, like he's just naming off all sorts of instruments in a worship service. You know, praise him with a guitar, praise him with a piano, praise him with a violin, praise him with drums. Uh, but there is actually something else going on underneath here that, that, that is so much more hope-giving than you might catch at first glance. Uh, these instruments that the psalmist names here, that these instruments were actually used in different moments across every part of life for somebody who lived in ancient Egypt or Israel. Uh, the trumpet was used to announce a victory or to start a feast. Uh, the tambourines and the, and the cymbals were used at weddings and celebrations. The pipe was used in the streets and just every day in people's homes. And the harp was often used in a funeral. That what the psalmist is actually carefully saying here is that every part of life, from the majestic to the mundane, from the celebratory to the sad, is an opportunity to praise the Lord. That how do we praise God? With everything we have in every situation that we're in. And now, if, if you're at all, if you're half as cynical as I am, uh, you hear something like that and you think, now, come on, that sounds a little bit naive, doesn't it? I mean, I, I get praising God when things are going well, uh, when, when, you know, I'm, when he's blessing me, but praising him when they're not? You know, when the brokenness of my life and our world becomes real, how can I possibly be expected to praise God then? I mean, this just sounds, it just sounds like happy, clappy American Christianity. Or we just put a Romans 8.28 band-aid over everything and say, well, there's just a silver lining in every cloud. There must be some reason for this. Let's just praise God for it. How can I possibly praise God in my sin, in my exhaustion, in my suffering? How, how can I praise him in the shame of my foolishness, in the strain of my weariness, in the grief of life's brokenness? But when the reason we're praising God is because of who he is to us and for us in Jesus, we see how. Because Jesus actually makes a way in the gospel for all of our prayers to eventually end in praise. That in moments of conviction, when we own, when I own a place where, where I've wandered from life with Jesus, thinking that something else other than him can give me what I think I really need or want. When we take 
that sin to God and Jesus, our confession actually gets transformed into joy. Joy because as we confess our sins, we're met by a God who in reply doesn't demand promises from us, but instead declares again his gospel promises to us, over us, in Jesus. And it brings us to joy in our exhaustion when either through the, the stage of life we're in, the line of work we're in, the difficult relationships we're in, or, or just, just through trying to love people well in a world that is not all that it should be. When we take our weariness to God in Jesus, our exhaustion gets transformed into rest. Rest in the God who will receive us when we have nothing to offer him and delights to fill us with Jesus. Because that's the gospel. Even our suffering. When we find ourselves in places that seem to contradict the character and promises of God, where hope feels distant, where hurt, loneliness, and despair are louder in our hearts than God's commitments of grace to us. When we take our suffering to God in Jesus, our lament gets transformed into trust. Because when we lament in Jesus, we are now freed to define our life circumstances through Jesus' circumstances. That we can come to a place of the costly trust in the God behind our suffering because we see that, that suffering was actually God's path for Jesus, which validates our suffering while never celebrating it, but instead intensifying our longing and hope for the resurrection glory yet to be revealed in us. You see, Jesus... He takes every part of our life, every circumstance that we're in, and he makes it like climbing a mountain. Now, I'm not very outdoorsy. In fact, I regularly describe myself as indoorsy, but I have climbed a mountain before. And uh, if your mountain climbing experience is anything like mine, here, here's what it was like. It, it begins with excitement, determination, uh, which then turns to exhaustion, frustration, and hunger because you ate all your snacks right at the start. Uh, but, but when you get to the top, it gets transformed into awe. Or it's like the birth of a baby. It begins with hope, anticipation, but then there's struggle, pain, Fear, but in the end, when they hand that baby to you, it's wonder and joy. It's just like the author Eugene Peterson once wrote. He said, praise is the goal of prayer. It's where we arrive after our long travels through unmapped back countries of pain, doubt, and trouble with only occasional vistas of sunlit lands along the way. That all prayer pursued far enough in time becomes praise. 
And the way we get there, the only way that we get there is when the reason we are praising God is because of who he now is to us and for us in Jesus. So the where, why, how, and now to close, I promise this one's short, the who of praise. Who is it? Who is it this morning right now that's getting called to praise the Lord in Psalm 150? Everyone. Uh, Verse 6 ends not just this psalm, but the whole book saying, let everything that has breath, everything, praise the Lord. That after this journey through over 150 psalms that went through the range of joy, thankfulness, relief, rest, grief, anger, repentance, doubt, this is where we end with this invitation for everyone, whether for the thousandth time or for the very first time this morning, to praise the Lord. It's an invitation that comes with a risk. Have you caught the risk of Psalm 150 yet? This psalm is it's calling us to decide today on a lifestyle of continually praising God no matter what happens. Now, what's the problem with that? I got no clue what the future's gonna hold for me. I don't know what's gonna happen next in my life. I don't know what things are gonna come into my life that I could have never seen coming. How how can I really say this morning that I want a life of continually praising God no matter what when I live in a world that is broken? Jesus is how you accept that risk this morning. He is how we accept the risk of God's invitation. He is the grace that we need to say today, I want to praise God, not knowing what the future is going to hold. Because I know in the gospel what my ultimate future holds, and it's right here. It's Psalm 150. It's praising Jesus with all of heaven and earth in the new creation where we have been calmed, relieved, and thrilled with his beauty. And even more than that, Jesus is the grace that we need for the ways that we'll fail to praise God. For how we'll praise other things above him or try to steal some of the spotlight for ourselves. He's the grace that renews us to praise the Lord. And when we do whatever we are facing, God gets bigger and more present. And so does our joy. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you this morning. We join this choir in heaven and on earth, praising you for who you are to us and for us in Jesus. Father, there there is no greater love that you could have ever shown us than giving us your son, who gladly, willingly gave up everything so that he could have us. Father, that is why we are praising you this morning 
in whatever we are going through, in whatever places of weariness, woundedness, wandering, we are praising you this morning for who you are in Jesus. Spirit, we only ask that as we do, you would make our joy complete in the God who delights and desires for us to enjoy him this morning. Amen.